Welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Today my guest is Luke Anderson Trockmay, who's a PhD student at McGill University. And we will be talking about some issues that you can run into when using some old sequencing data. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So we'll be talking about this legacy sequencing data, as, as you call it, and specifically the data that comes from the Thousand Genomes Project. So maybe let's start with some general background. What is the Thousand Genomes Project? Yeah, so the Thousand Genomes Project uh, is a collection of genome sequence data from uh, 26 populations. Uh, this was a large kind of collective effort done by a whole bunch of institutes from all around the world um, like 12 years ago or so. Uh, and this was kind of uh, done over the course of several years using different uh, sequencing technologies. And, and this was done, you know, because 12 years ago, sequencing te technologies were still being developed. So as they were producing the data, they were kind of developing things as they were going. I mean, this is one of a few publicly available data sets and uh, as you can imagine, publicly available data is, is a lot easier to work with than some of these private databases. Um, and uh, these databases are often used for uh, all types of research projects. Uh, Any time that you're doing some medical or population genetic research, you want to know how common a certain mutation is in a population, or you want to know... Um, how related two populations are. And so the Thousand Genomes Project is an excellent uh, resource for, I guess, kind of figuring out how diverse human populations are and uh, just kind of as a, as, a, as a reference cohort to kind of figure out uh, what, do, what does human diversity look like. Um, and many people will be using these reference cohorts for doing low frequency estimations and a, a few different things. Yeah, so as you say, uh, this data can be used for many different purposes. And uh, what was your purpose when you just started this research? Uh, you didn't start it with the intent to to find some problems with the data set, but you started with some, uh, you know, normal research goal, right? What was that? Yeah, so we actually started this project uh, trying to replicate a really interesting result uh, that was identified by uh, Kelly Harris and Jonathan Pritchard, um, where they noticed that looking at, so when, when you're looking at different populations in the, in, in the Thousand Genomes Project, you can identify different uh, rates of certain mutational profiles. Um, and they found that the Japanese population of this database had a heterogeneous signature. So that means that like part of the population had a mutational signature and the other part of the population did not. And let's define this right away. So what is the mutational profile or a mutational signature? Yeah, so um, basically if you count all of the mutations in somebody's genome, uh, you can then categorize them into different uh, groups. And so, for example, if you take the, the, the base before and after every single mutation, you can classify them into what we call, uh, I guess, threemers. So we're talking about specifically about point, point mutations here. Exactly. Yeah, we're talking about single nucleotide polymorphisms or, or SNPs. Um, and, and I guess an example that I like to use because it, uh, people tend to be a little bit more aware of this kind of thing is... Uh, these mutational profiles can be used to, uh, to diagnose certain types of cancers. Uh, so for example, like UV radiation will cause thymine dimers in DNA, which so that it will only affect two uh, T bases that are side by side, and it's going to force them to bind together instead of across. And what you end up getting is that if you have a cancer caused by UV radiation, like for in, in melanoma skin cancer, um, you would have a, a, an enrichment of a certain type of mutational profile. In this case, it would be the, the TT thymine dimers. Um, these, are, these are mutational signatures that are relatively easy to identify because cancers have a lot of mutations. Um, but the ones that, that we'll be talking about are, are more subtle mutational profiles that can only be identified at a, at a population-wide scale. So we're looking at 
tallying up all of the mutations for an individual, but then also doing that for all the individuals in a population. Uh, and then comparing, you know, what are the enrichments of certain types of mutations across different populations. And the idea would be that as in cancer, these signatures have a specific, so a specific signature might correspond to a specific source uh, or a specific mutagen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so this is still um, something that's being uh, discussed and, and kind of looked into as to what exactly might be causing these uh, differences in, in mutational profiles. Um, there would be, some have suggested a possible mutator phenotype or a, a slight mutator phenotype, meaning that like your DNA repair mechanism or something involved in, in that might have a slight bias towards not being able to repair certain types of uh, mutations. Um, now, obviously, this would be, you know, fairly limited in, 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 in how many mutations can occur, because, of course, there's going to be negative selection against any mutator phenotype. But, um, yeah, the biological reasons for these are, are not yet fully understood. But uh, you would also uh, presumably have, have many environmental factors that could produce something like this. So, for example, if the population in question has elevated smoking rates or elevated uh, exposures to certain mutagens, you might expect to find possibly uh, an increase in a certain type of mutational signature in that population. Right. So you were talking about this study by uh, Kelly and Pritchard, and they discovered this uh, specific mutational signature in the Japanese population. Now, what was their discovery based on the Thousand Genomes Project? Yeah, so, so in 2017, uh, they identified a mutational signature that was um, enriched in only a, a, a portion of the Japanese population of the Thousand Genomes Project. Um, and so I should say that, that uh, Harris uh, has also identified multiple other mutational profiles in other populations, and those mutational signatures have been replicated in other databases. Um, but this one, this particular one with the Japanese population had not yet been replicated in another population, in, in another data set than the Thousand Genomes Project. Um, and so it was an interesting mutational signature because only part of the, of the population had it. And, and the reason why this is interesting is that because we're looking at genome-wide mutation rates, um, if there is a population structure... So that, that would mean like limited uh, mixing between uh, individuals in a population. Um, it, it would take a long time, many, many generations for a genome-wide signature to actually be differentiated between these groups of people. Um, so it seemed a little bit unlikely that it was a population st structure effect, especially on in in. The population of Japan, which is on an island, a relatively small island with a relatively high population density, it seems unlikely that there would be such strong population structure. Um, the other hypothesis that we had of how to explain this 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 effect was maybe there's some environmental factor here that might be causing something, and uh, Japan has had a history of. Uh, mutagens that would have been exposed to the population. And so we were interested in trying to figure out, well, is it a population structure effect? Is it some environmental mutagenic source that's causing this, this uh, mutational signature? Or the third option would be, well, maybe it's just a technical artifact. Maybe it's not a true signature that was observed in this population. And uh, why is the fact that the signature is present only in half a population why is that weird? So if if that was a single SNP, if that was a single variant, and we would observe it in, in a half of the population, we would just say that the allele frequency is 0 0.5. But uh, here, is it because that when it is present, it is the signature can be present in very high uh, numbers in a single individual, but that completely absent in other individuals or why is it that we find this this weird yes that's that, that, that's a great question um basically it's that 
we're looking at a, a genome-wide signature um, and the, the rate of, of these mutations across the genome is, is or at least in, in this database, is, is relatively consistent. Um, and so for a genome-wide signature to be preserved in a population, um, you would need very, very strict like lack of migration between these groups. Um, because anytime you would have any migration between these two groups, that genome-wide signature breaks down within like a generation or two because, because you would have one parent from one uh, subpopulation and another parent from the other one, and their offspring would have half and half, and that mutational signature would just disappear within a generation or two. So, so again, is it, is it because it's present in high numbers in a single genome? Or what's, what's the crucial difference between a mutational signature and a single variant? Right. So, so this is a, it, it's a, it's a summary statistic. So whereas you're right in saying that it's not that unusual for a single mutation to be present at 50% frequency, that happens all the time. But what we're looking at is a summary statistic. So we're taking all of the mutations of a genome, all of the mutations of all the genomes actually, and, and counting the number of AAA to ACA mutations. And so there might be 50 of them. And then we look at the next category and the AAA to AGA mutation might have 100. And so we're kind of summing up all of these different mutations to get a mutational profile. And so it's this profile that we're talking about, not necessarily one particular mutation or or uh, a, a select number of mutations. We're looking at the entire range of this spectrum. And in particular, the one that was identified by, by Harrison Pritchard, it's the blank AC to blank CC uh, mutational profile that was enriched in the Japanese. And then that means that uh, an A followed by C is likely to mutate to C followed by C? Exactly. And so you were observing that signature in high numbers in half of the Japanese population, but the other half didn't have that signature at all, right? Exactly. And, yeah. and so you, one of your hypotheses was that maybe that's an artifact. Yeah, exactly. Um, or at least that was the uh, one of the hypotheses that we had. And so it was either going to be maybe this is... Uh, if this is population structure, then wow, this is like a very strong signature and very interesting and worth looking into from a population genetics perspective. Uh, and so I work in a population genetics lab. So this was something that we wanted to follow up on. Uh, the other hypothesis would be maybe there's something environmental that's causing this mutational um, profile in the Japanese. And then the third option would be, like you just said, the technical artifact. And so that was the initial goal of this project was, can we replicate this finding that was that Kelly and, and that Kelly Harris and, and Pritchard uh, found uh, in a larger, higher quality Japanese data set? Um, and so when we so uh, with some collaborators from from uh, from Japan, we were able to get our hands on several thousand high quality, uh, very deep sequencing from a few thousand individuals from Japan. And we found that none of those uh, mutations were present in this newer database. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, so that in, in itself was just, you know, evidence suggesting, hmm, you know, something funky is going on here. Something's not adding up. Maybe we should investigate a little bit further. Right, right. So how, how did you go about that? So, so the first step that we, that we did, which is uh, essentially what I, what I was just saying, is that when we compare the frequency of mutations between the higher quality database and the lower quality uh, data, or, or the thousand genomes data, I should say, um, we find that there is a large number of missing variants uh, between these two databases, uh, meaning that a mutation is present at a certain frequency in one database, but then completely absent in the other, um, which is not that unusual per se when you're doing these sequencing efforts, because there is going to be sampling noise where you're not going to be actually collecting the entire, you know, population of Japan, you're only going to be able to, to sample a, a small number of individuals. But um, when we filtered out these positions, so we're removing positions that are missing in either database, so we're only keeping positions that are found in both, 
um, this mutational signature disappeared um, and in, in the Thousand Genomes Project. And so that means that the mutations that are causing this signature are missing from the newer, higher quality database. And this was, you know, we kind of thought, all right, we figured it out. This is a technical artifact in the Japanese population. Uh, great, you know, we did it. But then, you know, we were kind of thinking, well, hang on a second. If this is something that's affecting one population of the Thousand Genomes Project, maybe it's also affecting other populations in the Thousand Genomes Project. And that kind of let us down this, uh, this rabbit hole of trying to figure out the right statistic to use to be able to identify these mutations in these other populations. Right. So, so one challenge uh, that you encountered was that not every population has this alternative data set. So you got lucky with the Japanese because they had this uh, larger sequencing project that you can get hold of. But that's not the case for all the populations in the Thousand Genomes Project, right? So you, you had to be sort of smarter about how you use the data. Exactly. So so with, with the Japanese population, uh, we were lucky enough to be able to compare it to kind of a, a, a golden standard of here is a database that has 10 times as many samples, much better, higher quality sequencing data. So we had a reason to trust this newer database. But like you said, it's, you know, not very, not, not all of the thousand genomes populations have been resequenced, uh, or, or sequenced to, uh, w w from another sequencing effort. And so for that reason, we had to, we had to think about a way to identify these particular mutations that we thought, or we understood to be potentially technical artifacts. Um, and so we started scouring through all of the supplementary materials from the Thousand Genomes Project, reading all of these extra supplementary methods and, you know, digging through all these uh, files and folders of the uh, Thousand Genomes Project website. And then finally we came across, and, so, and every time that, that, that we found a different metric or a different thing, we would, we would do a, a regression to see, you know, does this correlate with the presence of this mutational signature. Um, and we found that the average quality of the mapped bases of an, in, of a, of an individual uh, was very highly correlated with the presence of this mutational profile. And when you say this mutational profile, you're still referring to the Japanese? Yes, exactly. The, the, the blank AC to blank CC mutational profile. So you were trying to find an explanation for it and then maybe generalize this explanation to the larger data set. Exactly. And so we found that this, this average quality of mapped bases worked out really well and was actually a pretty good predictor for whether or not an individual would have these particular mutations. And this was not only just a, a great, you know, moment of, wow, you know, we found something that might explain it, but it was also... Um, you know, pretty strong evidence that there was something, you know, suspicious about these particular mutations where, you know, why would all of these mutations be associated or correlated with lower quality data? Um, and that was kind of the moment that we started to realize, all right, it looks like there's something batch effect, some technical artifact that might be causing these particular mutations. Yeah, I imagine there are very few legitimate explanations for, for that correlation. Yeah. And, and when you discovered it, maybe you thought, well, how come we didn't think about this earlier, right? Because this is sort of maybe obvious in retrospect, in the hindsight, but I, I imagine, yeah, it, it took some time to, to arrive at. Yeah, and I mean, it's... it's um... I mean, I, I should say that, you know, the, the quality control done by the thousand genomes is, is very solid. They, I mean, they have experts that have, you know, done a very good job of actually flagging a lot of these regions that are not very, uh, that they're not called confidently. And so what's, what, what, ex there's a, a strict mask that, that exists. And so mm -hmm. a mask is referring to, uh, um, regions of the genome that, meet a certain criteria. So you might have like an indel masks where you'll just remove all of the insertions and deletions of the genome, or you'll have 
what I'm talking about is the strict mask, which is the regions that are kind of deemed high enough quality to be included in genomics research. And so the Thousand Genomes Project has been updating this strict mask over the years and, and kind of calling, you know, these regions are trustworthy and these regions are not trustworthy. So they, they have been doing quite a bit of quality control over the years. Um, but I guess, yeah, just, just doing a uh, regression on the quality of the data to try and identify variants that are associated to quality was something that hadn't been done yet. Yeah, that's that's a very good point, and that's easy to miss. So, so the bases that we're talking about are not complete junk, right? They, mm -hmm. they meet some minimal quality threshold. Um, and uh, do you remember, by the way, what sort of like what's the minimum, uh, let's say, FRAT score threshold? the Thousand Genomes Project adopted and uh, when you run your regression was the threshold more or less of, of the basis you can trust versus the basis that can cause this kind of artifacts? Yeah, so we actually uh, in, in the association test we didn't actually have a strict cutoff for, for, for quality um, but if you look at the the range of the quality across the Thousand Genomes Project um, there's there's quite a range and so it goes from close to 20 all the way up to nearly 50 where i want to say 80 percent of the data is within between 30 and 40. Mm -hmm. um and and so yeah so so this is a a value that is computed from a fred score it's not directly a fred score but it's an it's an average fred score across the entire genome um i mean it's not an ideal uh, metric to use, you know, ideally we would have a per base per individual quality value, but th those uh, statistics weren't available to us at the time. Yeah, and the fact that uh, those are not just random errors, but they result in some very specific signatures, that fact suggests that it's not just the low quality bases that are randomly erroneous, but there is something with that sequencing process or maybe data preparation process or, or something right in, in the pipeline probably that uh, that causes this. And by the way, you um, you looked into whether that could be an artifact of sample prep, right? And uh, can you talk about that part of your study? Yeah, so, so this was kind of a long-standing unanswered question for... for quite some time while we were working on this project is, is this, are these actually, you know, false positives that are just turning up in the sequencer? Or is this actually, you know, real mutations, but that are somehow affected by, you know, the sample prep. And so just to kind of summarize it, it's, is it, are these spurious mutations or is it a cell line artifact? And so, the, the whole the, the cell line artifact hypothesis would be something along the lines of so you 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 sample your 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 individual you collect the blood and then before you can go from blood to sequence sequencing data on your computer you have to extract the cells you have to treat them to to turn them into cell lines um, and so these cell lines are then stored and transported all around the world for, for research purposes. Um, and, and a lot of these techniques for sample preparation were being developed at the time as they were doing the Thousand Genomes Project. And so the, the whole sample prep and, and sequencing platforms were being updated as, uh, as, the, as they were being sequenced. So, so that means that some samples would have been prepped with one method and other samples would have been prepped with, other, with another method. Um, and, and in this cell line artifact hypothesis, um, what, we, what we were seeking to, to at least rule out was, are these actual physical mutations in cells that could have been impacted by this cell line prep or is this a technical artifact in the sequencer or in the data processing downstream, um, and and the way that we that we tested for this is um, there was uh, eighty three individuals from uh, the Chinese Han population that had been very 
deeply sequenced recently. Um, so the, the sequencing depth is referring to the number of overlapping reads when you're doing your alignment. Um, and the thousand genomes is an average read depth of, I think, five or six. It's pretty low. And then this ultra deep resequencing effort was had a, a read depth, I think, of 60, if I'm not mistaken. So much, much higher. Um, and because we're comparing the same individuals to the same individuals, so we're looking at these 83 individuals that had been resequenced between the Thousand Genomes Project and this resequenced version of the Thousand Genomes Project, we were able to compare, you know, are these mutations present in these cell lines or is it a, or is it a technical artifact? Um, and so we found that uh, roughly uh, 2% of the variants that we did identify were replicated in the resequence data, but that meant that 98% of the variants that we had identified were missing from this resequence data, which is very strong evidence suggesting that these mutations are not actually present in these cells. Right, so an important thing to, to maybe clarify here is that what, the, what those people uh, doing the Thousand Genomes Project did was they not just collected some samples, sequenced them, and basically threw them away, but they prepared these cell lines. So they perhaps envisioned that uh, their methods weren't perfect, and they envisioned that in the future there will be better methods. And so they, once they collected the the samples, the biological material, uh, there was some value in. Uh, preserving that material. And that's basically what you uh, took advantage of. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it, so there are, there are many reasons to, to store samples. And one of them you just mentioned is that maybe there's going to be better technology in the future, but there's also, you know, maybe different technology. What if they wanted to sequence the RNA from these cells? Or what if they wanted to sequence the uh, trans the, uh, the proteome data from these cells or, you know, any type of new technology might be of interest to this particular data set. And because of the great value of the diversity and the experimental design of the Thousand Genomes Project, it was definitely worthwhile to preserve these cells for future work, for sure. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, so regarding the sample prep hypothesis, the, the hypothesis that these um, signatures originated in the cells, and they then they were genuinely sequenced, right? Accurately sequenced, right? That hypothesis wouldn't explain the correlation with the um, sequencing quality, right? Yeah. So that that was something that we were kind of t dealing with and trying to make sense of. And and now, so the results of, of of our of our experiment here shows that it is not a cell line artifact which makes a lot more sense with, with this data quality uh, metric that we were, that we were observing. Um, but it was still something that we, that we needed to rule out. And so once you establish, so, so let's revisit what you established by this point. So you established that uh, these signatures are fake for the reasons that first it was absent from a different data set and it was absent from the resequenced data set, right? So you were pretty confident that these signatures aren't real, mm -hmm. but then you wanted to generalize this onto the bigger data set, on, onto the whole 1000 Genomes project. And so first of all, let's, let's clarify, why is it not simply a matter of running the same regression for the rest of like 25 uh, of the other populations? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. And actually, that was what we did initially. So we ran this uh, genome-wide association study, essentially a GWAS for association to quality uh, in the Japanese population. And we found a certain number of variants that were significantly associated to, to quality. And then we did the exact same method and applied it to each of the other uh, 25 populations of the Thousand Genomes Project. And this resulted in finding over a thousand variants that were significantly associated to quality independently. So that means that each of these variants would have been identified separately in the 
in each of these populations. But um, because the Thousand Genomes Project only has roughly 100 samples per population, we were pretty limited with the power of the statistical test we were running. You can imagine that running a genome-wide association study with 100 individuals is not a very uh, you know, powerful study to, to do. And, and the fact that we were even able to find any significant associations was, was kind of surprising. Um, but the, the, in order to increase our power to identify more positions in the genome, we, we had to do a, a combined test. Um, and, and the reason why it's more statistically powerful is that if you can imagine a position that is just under the genome-wide significance threshold in one population, and then also just under the genome-wide significance threshold for another population, if you combine these two populations, to, or if you combine this test with these two populations, it's very likely that that single locus that I just mentioned would be very significant because you have twice as many samples and in both these cohorts, it's slightly associated to quality. And to, to come from the opposite side, uh, why couldn't you just combine, you know, all these thousand genomes and run a single regression on the whole data set? Yeah. So, um, so the reason why you can't just combine all these samples, uh, blindly and run this association test um, without taking into account population structure is that you might find that, um, for example, uh, the Japanese population has a, a large heterogeneity in the data quality of this population, you know, hence why we, uh, they identified this particular signature in that population. But the, that means that the average quality of the data from this Japanese population is a, is lower than other populations. So what that means is that you might find mutations that are real, real mutations that are, that are in higher frequencies in Japanese individuals. Um, but that would happen to be associated to quality simply because they're, uh, Japanese. And so this is where the collinearity of the population and the quality comes into play. Okay, can you explain the term collinearity? Yeah, so I guess maybe the, the, the best way for me to explain this would be um, it's like a, a nested batch effect. And so what that means is that um, when these samples were being sequenced, um, they weren't being randomly sequenced from uh, different individuals from different populations. There was often an entire population sequenced on one day in one sequencing center. And so what that means is that it's hard to distinguish between mutations that were uh, the result of a technical artifact on that one day versus mutations that were just real mutations, but present only in those individual sequenced that that day. And so the collinearity is referring to you have the population structure or the allele frequency of a certain mutation in a population would also be associated to quality simply because all those individuals are sequenced on one day at the same time in the same center. So you had to develop a statistical model that would strike a balance between these two dangers, not having enough power and coming to the false conclusions because of, of these spurious correlations, right? So how did you approach building the statistical model? Yeah, so, so this is uh, something that is uh, fairly commonly done in uh, genome-wide association studies, where typically people will either use a categorical variable of population, um, or uh, more commonly, they'll use the uh, top four or top five principal components uh, from a PCA, um, which would control for population structure in the association test. And when you say PCA, what, what do you run your PCA on? Yeah, so, so we would uh, typically, uh, you, you run PCA on, on the actual uh, genetic data that you're, that you're doing your association test on. Um, but in our case, because we were kind of, we were trying to distinguish between batch effects and, you know, 
real sequence data and population structure, we had to use the genotype data from the Thousand Genomes Project, which would have been sequenced or which would have been genotyped using a different technology. Um, and so this PCA was computed using those positions uh, to hopefully avoid taking into account these uh, batch effects in the PCA. Mm -hmm. But like more more specifically, so you have this matrix, right? What what are the rows? What are the columns? Yeah, so we have uh, so the rows would be um, individual positions, and the columns would be uh, a, 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 an individual from that population. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, typically, individuals from the same population will cluster together because they share uh, recent ancestry. Uh, that would mean that their allele frequencies are more similar for more positions. And so when you're doing a principal component analysis, you're able to kind of pick up on a lot of this population structure. And so after after you run your, your PCA, you're trying to find the smaller basis. You, you're trying to find this, uh, let's say, five principal components that would um, explain the... Like the person's genotype? Yeah, exactly. So um, I guess the, the, the null model for our test is, can we predict an individual's genotype simply based on which population they, they, they belong to or they come from? Um, or So that would be for the categorical variable. But in, in the case of PCA space, for example, we would just say, how much of the genotype can, can we explain through... PCA. And so what, what that means is that um, we're trying to predict, so the, the, this is a, a logistic regression where we're trying to predict your genotype based on a phenotype. In this case, the phenotype is, is the data quality. Um, but the null model would just be how well can we predict your genotype if we know um, your, which population you belong to uh, and then the alternate is how well can we explain it using population and quality? And then we take the, the, the difference in the betas between these two uh, tests, and, and that is the, the, the deviance, which is a, a chi-square distributed uh, variable that we then use to, to uh, compute the p-values for, for each of these uh, association tests. So in your model, your, not the null model, but the alternative model, you have, let's say, six predictors in the logistic regression, five of which are the top principal components, and then the sixth is the base quality. Essentially, yeah, mm -hmm. that's, 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 uh, that's how it would work. Cool. And, and so, yeah, well, what did you find once you were able to generalize this to the whole Thousand Genomes Project data set? Yeah, so, so once we were able to um, perform this test on all populations simultaneously while controlling for population structure, uh, we were able to identify a total of 24,390 variants that were statistically significantly associated to quality. Um, I should say that um, only 15,000 of those actually passed the Thousand Genomes strict mask filter. So that means that this, this, this strict mask that I was talking about earlier is actually doing a pretty good job and, and was able to, to, to remove many of these variants simply because of where those variants were in the genome. Um, but that's still 15,000 mutations that are associated to quality that are currently included in the best, you know, up-to-date quality controlled version of the Thousand Genomes Project. Yeah, that that is scary. And so, but like to to put this into perspective, what's the total number? Is it like around a million um, of uh, snips? There are. Give me a second. I have that number. Yeah. So so there was a total of uh, twenty eight million five hundred and sixteen thousand variants included in the test that we ran. Uh -huh. um, and so out of that twenty eight million, there was fifteen uh, or twenty four thousand of them that that were associated to quality. So so that's a small percentage but still if if those end up you know being discovered as statistically significant in some kind of study and then someone discovers a gene for x right that, that that's scary so like 
who is impacted by this? So obviously, like people who run GWASs, right? People who are looking for these mutational signatures. What what are the implications of these uh, fake variants in in circulation? So the first thing that we wanted to look at is maybe the imputation servers are ahead of the game. Maybe they know that some of these variants have issues. And so the first thing that we did was um, to, to just test to see if these particular variants are included in imputation services. And t- talk a bit about what imputation services are. So when you, um, so sequencing an individual is still relatively expensive. Uh, So that means sequencing every single base of the genome. But oftentimes you don't actually need that super high resolution data. uh, And it's often cheaper um, to just genotype an individual. And so that's using a different technology. This would be uh, like chip sequencing, for example, where you're only sequencing every thousand bases of, of, of an individual's genome, or you're, or you're sequencing particular SNPs across the genome that you know ahead of time are very good at distinguishing between um, different people from different populations or maybe uh, risks for certain diseases. So genotyping data is, is very common. So one, one of the steps that people do once they have genotype data is they'll try to get more data out of it. And so this is where imputation comes into play. So if I'm a researcher today who just got some some money to to genotype individuals, I would get the genotype data, but then try to increase my the number of, of, of SNPs in my data set by submitting my genotype data to an imputation server. Um, and then this imputation server would then compare the um, mutations of a, of a given individual to a reference panel. And so, for example, if the sample in question is from the Japanese population, then they might, for a particular region of the genome, they might be very similar to one of the Japanese individuals in the reference database. And so all of the mutations from that individual in the reference database would then be um, filled in or imputed onto this this genotype query or this sample that you're trying to impute. And so so essentially what this means is that these spurious mutations in the Thousand Genomes Project are being imputed onto new data as it's being imputed. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea of the imputation is that uh, there aren't that many uh haplotypes there are fewer haplotypes than, than people because when when someone has a baby right they pass their genome mostly unaltered there may be some recombinations there may be some mutations but mostly at least piecewise it's it's the same haplotype as in one of the parents and so you can sort of create a map of, of these haplotypes and uh figure out right in, infer the um, the regions of the genome between two SNPs by, by the SNPs you can figure out which haplotype that comes from and then uh, sort of fill in the rest as in that sequence sequence person exactly and, and these imputation servers uh, who are they run by are they run by researchers are they run by commercial entities um the the most popular uh, imputation server that uh, that is that is used in research is the uh, the Michigan imputation server. And so this would be run by University of Michigan, um, but because they have a lot of, or or it, it, it it's a black box in the sense that we don't know which uh, how many samples or which references are used in this in this database. For good reasons, I mean, this this tends to be pretty private data. I mean, sequence data is, is very private, and so for that reason, um, we don't know exactly which samples are included uh, as part of the reference panel, um, and so that was the main reason why we seeked to see if if these particular positions were included in the in in the Michigan imputation server. How did you do that? Did you submit the 
like the normal variants and then just uh, waited to see if the fake variants would be returned by the server? Yeah, so we we did a kind of a worst case scenario approach where we actually imputed the actual thousand genomes data, uh -huh. uh, which is kind of a bit of a circular argument because, you know, of course you're going to get really high imputation scores because you're using the actual individuals that are in the reference panel. Right. Um, but I mean, that was the point. We just wanted yeah. to see, are these positions going to be imputed onto these samples? And so we found that all of them were. And so when we took the genotype data from the Thousand Genomes Project and we imputed it using the Michigan Imputation Server, all of the variants that we identified as being associated with quality were imputed back onto these samples. Um, I should say that it's not likely that all of these variants would be imputed if the individual is not from the Thousand Genomes Project. So if you were to take any you know individual sequence data or genotype data, it's not guaranteed that all of those variants would be imputed onto that individual. It's just because we use the actual reference samples and imputed them onto the genotype data. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the impact, so let's say those variants are being imputed and let's say you're running a GWAS study. Do those fake variants have a higher chance of being sort of picked up by, by a GWAS or do they just get a fair chance out of those 28 million variants? Yeah, so so um, we didn't find an enrichment um, of GWAS hits for these particular variants. And I mean, we don't, we don't expect any of these variants to be associated to any phenotypes. Um, so yeah, so, so we didn't, we didn't find an, an enrichment in these, uh, in these variants. Um, but we still searched the, uh, GWAS catalog to see if any publications had reported these variants to be associated to some phenotype, just to see whether or not these uh, variants have impacted genomic analyses. And of course there have been, right? Yeah, so we found um, 17 papers that reported uh, variants that we identified as being associated to quality. Did you follow up on them? What, what happened next? So the, the next thing that we did was, okay, so first we have to see, well, did they actually use um, this, this, the thousand genomes project sequence data directly, or were they using it for imputation? And for, for the most part, they used, um, imputed data from the thousand genomes project. Um, there was a, there was a few studies that used the actual sequence data or, or some other version of some in-house reference panel imputation. Um, but one thing that was, that was very reassuring, I guess, is that all of these studies used the state of the art, very strict quality filters, including, you know, Hardy-Weinberg e equilibrium, um, deviations from an expected allele frequency, or just, you know, uh, sequencing quality thresholds. And so despite using these highest, you know, best practices for quality control, some of these variants were still near genome-wide significance uh, for some of these phenotypes that they tested for. And that's an interesting connection to to the Hardy Weinberg equilibrium. Could you could you explain what it is and how you could use that to perform quality control? Yeah. So the Hardy Weinberg equilibrium is a uh, theoretical expectation from what we know about population genetics, um, and so essentially it's looking for is there a so if we know that there is a certain number of heterozygote individuals, we can predict the expected number of homozygote individuals um, based on the Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium. And so, for example, if we find an abnormally large number of heterozygotes without finding a certain amount of homozygotes or, or vice versa, then, then, then that particular position would not uh, be within the, uh, the Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium test. And so that, that will indicate that something is shady with, with that particular SNP. So um, not necessarily. This, so, so for example, if, if a position is under active selective pressure, then it would not necessarily respect Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium. Um, and there's also, so for example, um, 
uh, sickle cell anemia has a selective advantage for um, heterozygotes. Uh, so you so you would expect that maybe that the distribution of uh, that particular variant, uh, which which protects people from sickle cell anemia, or sorry, that protects people from malaria, um, would not necessarily be in Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium. Mm-hmm. But for most population genetic studies, when you're looking at uh, regions of the genome that are mostly uh, accounted for by drift, you don't necessarily want to include regions of the genome that are under active selection. Um, and so for that reason, people will use Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium uh, tests to, to remove some of these variants. Right. So you were talking about those studies that uh, picked up the fake variants and how they they were able to filter out some some portion of these fake variants using the Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium and other quality control measures, right? But not all. Mm-hmm. So some still leaked through. Yeah, that's right. And so I should also say that um, for the most part, these these uh, these studies um, did not find genome wide significance for these particular variants, but they were close enough to genome wide significant that they included them in their supplementary materials. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is still important for science in general because many of these uh, supplementary materials are included in uh, polygenic risk score tests where they'll do some meta-analysis combining multiple GWAS studies to see if they can get more power out of these studies by combining them. Um, And so there is a chance that some of these variants, even though they're only somewhat, you know, weakly associated to whatever phenotype is, is in question, that combining multiple of these association studies in a polygenic risk score, um, might include some of these variants that are that are spurious. And then one other thing that you did was to look at how these um, spurious variants were distributed across the genomes, right? And, and you found something quite interesting there. Yeah. So um, when you look at the distribution of, of these Q-associated variants across the genome, um, we found that there was almost twice as many variants in chromosome 1 uh, compared to the rest of the genome. And, and this is accounting for the size of chromosome one. So the rate of these variants was higher. Um, and this was a bit of an unusual result. And we kind of had a hard time making sense of it because, you know, why would there be an enrichment in one chromosome? Uh, it doesn't really make sense biologically because your DNA repair mechanisms or DNA replication uh, mechanisms they don't know which chromosome they're working on. So they wouldn't necessarily have, there's no reason why there would be an enrichment of mutations in one chromosome compared to another. Um, it also doesn't really make sense technologically because when you chop up all the bits of your genome and send it to your sequencer, the sequencer doesn't know which chromosome it's working on. So why would there be an enrichment of these particular mutations in a chromosome? Um, and I guess the the only option available left is is uh, data processing, um, which actually kind of narrowed down our search for the cause of these uh, mutations quite quite a bit. Um, so in, in a lot of these bioinformatics pipelines for data processing, it's quite common for researchers to split the work on a per chromosome level, where you you'll run the same alignment or genotype calling or whatever process, you'll do it on a per chromosome level. And so I should say we didn't actually narrow down exactly the cause of this, uh, the source of these mutations. Um, But our our best guess is that it's something in the data processing pipelines um, of of the sequence data. Right. So so you didn't yet get to the root of of that. But at least in in principle, that's an empirical question and one that shouldn't be too hard to figure out. If you have the if you have access to the original sequencing data, right, you can um, run the pipeline 
or you can run your own pipeline or a more modern pipeline and then you can differentiate between whether those mutations arose in the sequencer which i think was your main hypothesis because different populations were perhaps sequenced on different instruments and some older instruments may be producing subpar quality results and in that case you would be able to reproduce those signatures using a modern pipeline or uh, maybe you wouldn't reproduce those signatures and then you know it's a purely sort of bioinformatic pipeline issue yeah exactly and so this is almost a kind of a uh a good news in the sense that if it is really an issue with the way that the data was processed, then recalling the thousand genomes data would would potentially solve those issues. And then you have another piece of good news, right? I believe the uh, New York Genome Center is, is doing something exciting in this space. Yeah, so um, in response to uh, the preprint that we had released for this paper, the New York Genome Center, so this the, the news spread and people were kind of talking about, you know, it's weird that nobody has resequenced this data set because it's so valuable to the scientific community. And then, you know, somebody else said, oh, you know, I thought the New York Genome Center was, uh, was doing something like this. Uh, and then, you know, later on, the New York Genome Center made an announcement saying that they were, in fact, in the process of sequencing, resequencing the entire thousand genomes data um, and from scratch using brand new technologies. And uh, so this is still um, unpublished uh, data, but the data is publicly accessible. Um, and so I would expect that maybe a version 2.0 of this database would be updated with, with their publication that is forthcoming. Um, but uh, it, this is, you know, really great news, and it just goes to show how quickly science can move forward when you just put out a preprint, and you know your your peers are the ones that are actually moving science forward. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was a really kind of a, a happy ending to this story, where for the longest time we were thinking, oh, you know, should we recall the sequence data? Should we, you know, do all this extra work? And then it just so happens that another research group had already done, you know, found the solution to all of our problems, despite not necessarily knowing uh, the issues with the older versions of the Thousand Genomes Project. Yeah, and on the other hand, even once we have the more modern data, both in terms of the sequencing instruments and in terms of the pipelines, I think we shouldn't get too complacent. And uh, we should remember that, you know, people back then also perhaps didn't uh, anticipate that there will be such um, severe issues with their data and so your work could become another quality assurance step, quality control step in the future even if we have better instruments, better pipelines still uh, this is an easy step that we could run this kind of logistic regression to see if we get some unexpected correlations with the base pair quality. Exactly. And so um, I, I should also mention that um, there have been a few other groups that have identified issues with the Thousand Genomes Project, um, most notably um, Mafisoni et al. from 2018 reported. Um, so they actually, and this was actually really interesting for us to read because when we were reading the paper, the headline was, you know, patch effects in the Thousand Genomes Project. And we thought that we had been scooped because, you know, this is exactly what we were working on. Um, but it, but they actually approached this in a very different way, which was actually really interesting to read because I knew so much about this database. And then here's this completely different approach to finding, you know, a similar issue where they looked at um, linkage disequilibrium associated variants. So, for example, two variants on different chromosomes are not very likely to be linked because they're on different chromosomes. So there's basically no linkage disequilibrium for these. But they were looking for unusual linkage disequilibrium patterns in the Thousand Genomes Project. And they found, you know, several uh, thousand of, of variants that were 
unusual in their linkage disequilibrium patterns. Um, so, so yes, I would definitely suggest to run our test of, of this simple logistic regression on any database because it's, it's a really easy test to run. You're basically doing a GWAS on quality. Um, but, I, but I would also highly recommend using this, the, the method that, that Mathesoni et al. Um, used uh, because they identified a different set of variants. Um, there was some overlap, but, but they were better at identifying some variants and, and we were better at identifying other variants. But clearly the combination of these two methods um, will do a great job at removing a lot of these spurious variants. Very cool, Luke. Great job, and uh, thanks thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's uh, really great to uh, hear that people are interested in this research, and uh, I definitely find myself kind of getting my in my own bubble and not thinking that anybody's actually interested in this work, and it's just really great to hear people are interested in this. So thank you for inviting me. Mm-hmm.